0: Welcome back to the official SASTA podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and if you'd like to suggest future guests or questions for the show, you can on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. But to our episode today, and I've been such a fan of the model this team have built, they've also been incredible community builders and players in the New York tech ecosystem over the last few years, and I'm so very excited to welcome Jessica Lin, co-founder and general partner at Workbench, one of New York's leading early-stage enterprise funds, with a portfolio including the likes of Cockroach Labs, X.ai, Dialpad, VTS and Catalyst to name a few. Prior to Workbench Jessica was a learning and development manager at Cisco Systems where she worked with the engineering organization on agile transformation, innovation and culture. Jessica is also actively involved with the education and workforce development community in New York City and serves as chair of the industry advisory board at Opportunities for a Better Tomorrow. But before we move into the show today, Lucidchart is a visual workspace that makes it easy to see and understand how your business works. Whether you're visualizing cloud architecture, whiteboarding ideas for a breakthrough application, redesigning team structures to be more agile, or streamlining a process that will drive greater productivity. Lucidchart helps you see how to make your business better, with more than 20 million people and 99% of the Fortune 500 relying on Lucidchart to see more, know more and do more. Join them by trying Lucidchart for free at lucidchart.com forward slash 20VC that's lucidchart.com forward slash 20VC and then there's a global pandemic, there's grim economic forecasts. Are you feeling the score An R&D tax credit can help you really lower your burn. If you qualify, and most tech startups actually do, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? Cross-Border Solutions, an AI-driven R&D tax credit software, eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. And you can request a demo today by visiting xbs.ai forward slash two zero. That's xbs.ai slash two zero. And there are two ways to add analytics to your application. Build them yourself with basic charts and dashboards using free charting libraries, or use a comprehensive analytics platform from a really trusted partner. If you've tried the build route, you know free is not free. Hidden costs like time, maintenance, and technical debt can really add up. And that's why you should check out Logi Analytics. Their developer-grade embedded analytics solutions make it easy to create branded dashboards and reports that scale within your own application. So stop wasting your dev team's time piecing analytics together and let them focus on your core application. Visit Loggyanalytics.com forward slash sasta for a demo and see what's possible. And that's Loggy L-O-G-I. Visit them today and see what is possible. But enough from me. So now I'm very excited to hand over to Jessica Lynn, co-founder and general partner at workbench good that's perfect okay I think we're warmed up Jessica, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. I've heard so many great things from the one and only Jonathan Lear. So thank you so much for joining me today, Jessica.
1: Thank you so much, Harry, for having me.
0: Not at all. I've actually really wanted to see this one for a long time. I love the Workbench model, but I do want to start today with a little bit about you. So how did you make your way into the world of SaaS? And how did you come to co-found Workbench? What was that aha moment?
1: <laughs> well, again, as you said, you may know us at Workbench as it to vc with my co-founder, Jonathan Lair, who joined your podcast in 2017. John, coming from Morgan Stanley corporate IT, my colleague Kelly coming from Forrester Research. But I'm actually not only IT to VC, I'm also Swahili to VC. So I studied international development and in Swahili in undergrad, thought I was going to end up in a career in global health, but then serendipitously ended up taking an engineering class my senior year of college that led me down a path of working with student startups. And then serendipitously, again, took on a role at Cisco Systems, working with really great internal engineering teams. And so my story is the ultimate story of Pivots, um, having really lived and breathed our motto at Workbench as an enterprise tech VC fund, which is that great things happen at the intersection of suits and hoodies.
0: Absolutely, it does. I have one very pressing question. Have you ever used your Swahili in work?
1: You know, I need to find more use cases for that, for sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a it's a burgeoning enterprise ecosystem, I'm sure. Exactly. I do want to dive in straight though, because, you know, it's it's such a pressing and interesting environment right now. And I want to start on kind of the lifeblood of any business, which is the Sales. Everyone is kind of anticipating COVID will kill the majority of pipe and new business discussions. If we kind of get a sense of the lay of the land, when you sit down with your companies for pipe reviews, how should founders expect to see their new business pipe be impacted?
1: Absolutely. And how we review pipe now is actually the same as how we review any other time with our portfolio companies. You know, I think a lot of SaaS VCs tend to look only at booked business or MRR. But where we like to spend time is actually a layer deeper because we know just how nuanced and Enterprise sales can be, and most of all, that they take a very long time and can be very complex. So that means in every pipeline review, understanding one, deal velocity. How are your meetings progressing? Who are they progressing with? Are the right stakeholders in the room? What's the next action step? How fast is the next follow-up meeting getting scheduled? How are pilots going? And what else can we be doing to get uh, clients onboarded as soon as possible? And then most of all, really the quality of the pipeline. How can we continue experimenting to grow the top of the funnel, whether it's content, now virtual events and more. We're of course taking into account COVID, that there are delays, that stakeholders may be distracted, but we're also still hearing demand from our corporate
0: network. Can I ask, and this is a totally off schedule, but why not? In terms of the stakeholders themselves, I always have the kind of perception in my mind that if you're not a top one, two, or three enterprise buyer for the CIO, it's going to be fundamentally challenging. And honestly, I do not find it so interesting. Is that short-sighted of me given the huge amount of software that CIOs and the stakeholders have to engage with today? Or do you think it is right to have that very rigid prioritization in mind?
1: One of the things that we talk a lot about with our companies and, and with our workbench community is that the... The misconception is to go straight to the CIO, right? The CIO is at the top dog. They have all the budget dollars to spend. But in our experience at Workbench, what we're seeing is that the actual stakeholders who are evaluating and assessing your tech as a vendor is really N-1, N-2, N-3, right? So the titles may be MD, VP, director. And so we actually advise our companies to go deeper within the org. And that's where you're going to find technologists who really appreciate and have the bandwidth and capacity to... To understand what you're doing.
0: Can I ask, how do you deepen that relationship when the CIO or the stakeholder is maybe more in the top echelons of the enterprise? How do you deepen that relationship and look to build those maybe more product champions when your key kind of primary contact is in the higher echelons?
1: Yeah, and this is so much of what even we do at Workbench as we build out the corporate network. It really is about how do you provide value to those executives, and a lot of them really love tech. That's the key part: is that they really love learning. about new tech, about what's out there, about how these technologies will transform what they're doing in their business. So we really advise our companies to be able to build those relationships really authentically. A sale may not happen within three months or even six months, but the more you can provide value to them, whether it's connecting them with other peers, whether it's inviting them to events, whether it's sharing, you know, those are the types of relationships and investment where you can see the enterprise relationship payoff, you know, maybe, sometimes even one to two years down the line, but can be very worth it.
0: Totally in terms of that sales cycle. You also mentioned pilots there and it can be a nice onboarding into kind of a much longer and more formal relationship. How have you seen the best engage with offering pilots and what's the structure of the pilots that you tend to advise when selling to enterprise?
1: Yeah, I think that's the number one thing for especially the enterprise and a big part of it is that time kills all deals. And this is more true than ever. So how do you get people using and loving your product ASAP? So you really need to Speed up onboarding, especially for an enterprise customer. So, our company Arthur, an explainable AI company, realized that the regulated industries they sell into all still want their solution on prem, even during a pilot phase. So, they set up an install that now only takes 15 minutes per deployment and also rolled out sample data sets and models so that customers can download and get models pumping into their platform in minutes. Our company FireHydrant, an incident response platform, has set up what are effectively sandbox simulations where their prospective customers can actually use fire hydrant in the case of a simulated outage. And so it pulls the now remote, now distributed reliability teams together and lets them collaborate on solving the problem where they can feel the power of the platform firsthand. So I always advise our companies, it's really accelerating the time to value. How can you make sure your customer gets fully onboarded as soon as possible, which again, sometimes can take up to three months in the enterprise with implementation and deployment, and then make sure that there's really high usage and active engagement within the first three months so that customers can see your ROI and value in that time and that the next six months then can be focused on upselling and cross-selling and the renewal.
0: In terms of optimizing the onboarding, often for enterprise, it can be a large part coaching, professional services, very much in-person, high touch, where the team really comes in and spends time on site. How do you think that kind of high touch professional services onboarding changes in a COVID world?
1: Yeah, I think so much of that is being creatively done now. And we're finding that there's new ways and a lot of it is blending. I think so much of new sales and customer success are blending together. And that's actually for the best. The, The love you show for your existing customers, you can now extend to new prospects as well. And I love that joke around VCs, let me know how I can help. (laughs) Well, this is true for enterprise startups too, right? Instead of saying a generic, how can I help? Go to your customers and prospects with three specific needs where you can help out the most based on other customers you're working with. So for example, our company Ripple Match, they started hosting community chats for university recruiters across their enterprise customers and prospects. These were really curated sessions where small groups of campus recruiters could have a safe space and come together and share what they're doing around recruiting this year. Our company Catalyst, a customer success platform, has been offering trainings not only to customer success managers, but to so many other functions like support and product since customer success and retention is so critical in this time cross-functionally. So I think it just looks and takes on a slightly different form, but being able to offer something that will truly help improve your customers' and prospects' lives is is really what's going to make you stand out during this time.
0: You mentioned some of the companies that, in terms of Catalyst, Ripple Match, they've really done it well. When you look across the kind of landscape and suite of companies, where do you think many potentially go wrong in terms of really engaging in that enterprise sale, also maybe in the midst of COVID?
1: For many people, it's tempting to throw out all messaging out the door and try to sell to COVID. And that may be relevant in a few industries like healthcare. But for most other enterprise software companies, the principles still hold true. What is the technology? What is a unique opportunity? And what is the ROI that I can bring to my customer. We had Kelly Breslin Wright, previously the EVP of sales at Tableau, who led the company to over $1 billion in revenue on one of our webinars yesterday at Workbench. And she said that with Tableau in 2008 during the financial crisis, they actually didn't change their messaging. If anything, actually reinforced their current mission, which became more important than ever. So if anything, it's not just selling features. It's not such selling functions. It's about telling your story. So for your customers, sharing with them user stories, how are other customers using your product? It may help illustrate new use cases that your prospects may not have known about before. Now, on the flip side, there is a chance that your messaging does have to change during this time in this new environment. And Bob Tinker, the founder and former CEO of Mobile Iron, shared with us that in 2008 for their smartphone security and management product, the downturn actually forced them to change their messaging. They had previously gone out with a productivity pitch but they realized that what was way more compelling to customers was cost savings which honestly ended up being a huge inflection point for them even better for them in the long run and the hardest thing bob said is for founders to let go of their founding idea it can feel really uncomfortable but you may need to go out and test new ideas potentially refine your go-to-market urgency fit by validating customers new top pain points during this time
0: yeah no absolutely i I totally agree especially in terms of kind of that more human narrative behind it, I guess that we're kind of thinking about that human narrative, how do you advise founders and reps on the right tone to engage with potential customers on in this time? It's such a tough time because you need to be empathetic, kind, caring, but you also have to achieve business objectives. So what's the right blend in terms of the tone that you adopt these discussions?
1: Bob said it best. During tough times like these for founders, you have to have both empathy, but also ruthlessness. And that gets talked about less. And I love that duality. And I see it in our founders. All of our enterprise companies still have sales targets. They may be adjusted, but the targets are still there. And they may just have to be more creative than ever to hit them. And I do think there is a way to strike that balance. And the best way really to do that is is simple. It's to truly care about your customers. And if you truly care about your customers in an authentic, genuine way, then you can be ruthless AF about solving problems for their business.
0: Can I ask, you mentioned targets there, and it's such an interesting talking point for me in particular, I'm really passionate about this one. And it's like, when you think about target setting with your companies, and you're really part of that active discussion, how do you set targets that are ambitious and really kind of stretch targets, but also you don't want to create ones which are unachievable and will create kind of disincentives within the team and a lack of morale if they're not hit? How do you strike that fine balance? And what does that kind of decision-making process look like for you with the founders?
1: I think about that a lot, especially for sales teams who may be harder for them right now to close new sales during this time. And I think the key. takeaway and lesson here is really just to over communicate, right? And what I mean by that is saying, hey, look, we may have to adjust targets. This is how we may be able to make it up to you, whether it's through spiffs, through other accelerants, but to constantly be clear with your sales teams. Something I've heard for a lot of account execs right now, it's less about the fact that they may not hit their original targets, but it's the fact that they don't have a clear roadmap in mind, right? What should I be doing with my time? And again, sales teams tend to be very competitive. They like to have goals. They like to have metrics. So I think as long as it's very clear to the sales teams, hey, look, we may have you focus less on closing new sales, but can we have you work the top of the pipeline? Can we help you help out more with customer success? Then I think that can be something that's really important for sales teams and founders to be uh, seeing right now.
0: Can I ask, I have Ben Braverman, the CR at Flexport on the show, and he kind of denigrated the specialization of sales and said, really, you lose that natural human relationship when you're simply kind of passed off from SDR to rep to AE. How do you think about the specialization of sales if that's right? And do you lose that human relationship with the kind of mechanical passing?
1: I do think, like I said earlier, that customer success and sales are blending now, right? And so much of what you were doing, again, for existing customers, you should be doing for new prospects. So I do think maybe perhaps in the future that those lines will be a little bit more blurred. I do think it's still helpful to have some sort of organizational structure, especially as teams grow bigger and bigger, but that customer success mindset coming to the center of the organization, I actually think it's a change for the better.
0: I do agree. I think it's better for the customer fundamentally. I do want to ask you, customer success that kind of being more and more important than ever. If we dive in a little bit, what specific and kind of deliberate things can startups do, not just to avoid churn, but also on the upside to expand usage and upsell?
1: Yeah, so much of what I shared a little bit with Ripple Match and Catalyst, I think is so critical. And, and the key is how do you get customers using the product during this time? And there are, of course, products perhaps within DevOps, security, automation that will be seen as more essential during this time. But it's really pretty, proving that time to value that I mentioned earlier that is going to be so critical so that when renewal does come up, you can prove very clearly to them, hey, this is how much you've been able to use our product and for this ROI. And a great example, like I mentioned, is our company Catalyst, the customer success platform. And what they're seeing with their platform is more and more usage, again, not with just customer success managers, but across product, across sales, across marketing, coming in and using their platform to understand customer health. And again, what their customers need. And so it's a little bit meta, but it truly is showing that customer success is now the center of the organization.
0: We love a good meta point, don't worry, on that one. But yeah. you mentioned that the renewals. And one thing I think that we'll see obviously a lot of, and by no means a wise person for this, but I think we'll see a huge, obviously, amount of discounts coming back. How would you advise and how do you advise your founders to approach discounts and how to think that through?
1: Yeah, you know, I do believe at least at the early stage that we're investing in at the C2, that offering a discount to, an enterprise or larger logo can be worth it in this environment. But then you do have to write in your contract around price increases for year two or just make it a one-year deal and then you readjust when the macro environment improves. And so I do still think big contracts can still get done at the enterprise. We're seeing this with our startup selling into large Fortune 500s. We just had a company close a multi-year, multi-hundred thousand dollar deal with a large pharma company. And the key is, of course, which sector and function. But if it's a true pain point at the enterprise it shouldn't be a budget issue from what we're seeing it tends to be a bit more black and white for large enterprises either there's a budget freeze or there's cash to spend and it might just get pushed back a quarter or two
0: totally and i always find like a give and take we give the discount but then we'd also love for an extensive case study to be available from you guys It's a little bit of a compromise i think there's a lot that you can negotiate with i do want to ask because there's a lot of rules of thumb in enterprise around churn specifically and when we're talking about customer success often people will say logos should retain at 95% on an annual basis. This is kind of one of the core rules of thumb. Would you agree with this? And how do you think about the rules of thumb around churn and maybe the ones you agree with versus disagree with?
1: (laughs) Yes, I do think that's a general good rule of thumb. What I will say is different than perhaps SMB is that in the Fortune 500 with enterprise customers, your contracts are either churning, renewing at flat, Or expanding. And it tends to be a little bit more tied to the hip is what we see. And so that's why enterprise deals are, of course, so much more painful to close. But when you do get them, they're stickier, right? It's that 12 to 18 month sales cycle versus the two to three month SMB contract. So we do see that a little bit more closely tied together, logo versus dollar retention.
0: Yeah, no, totally, especially in the tie. I am interested because a lot of VCs kind of always shirk when they hear the element of professional services. I personally, quite like it. Obviously, not as good for the margin, but fundamentally, I think, great for the retention and usage. How do you feel on the professional services basis? And what do you think is a healthy ratio of kind of product to professional services revenue?
1: You know, at the early stage where we're seeing, you know, we really advise our companies to just invest as much as possible in customer uh, success and professional services. And especially in the early days where product is still getting built out, that's where actually so much understanding from your customers of what needs to be built into product so it can be automated more in the future is so important. So the more that you can invest there in customer success, it feeds so much better into product. And that's where staying close to your customer and customer feedback can be such a critical part of your product roadmap and development.
0: Yeah, no, I'm totally with you in terms of that super tight communications channel. Can I ask, I want to delve into Workbench a little bit more as an organization now, especially in terms of the current times, because Workbench has a specific strategy around events and community and is absolutely killed in the last of As I said, I love your model and so many people talk to me about your events. It's uh, incredible. But I want to talk about how it's been impacted in the recent environment. So how have you adapted your approach and strategy in the face of COVID and the rise of virtual events?
1: Absolutely. I mean, community has been such a core part of our DNA at Workbench since day one. We've in the past hosted up to 200 enterprise events a year in New York and we've moved everything online. And in a way that surprised me, I've actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought we would. You know, it's easier than ever to spin up up events, there's more access, more people across the country, the world can join. So, we've been doing at least one to two webinars and events a week with Fortune 500's founders, sales leaders, our corporate roundtables, sales leader chats. And the number one thing I always say is that content still needs to be number one. And I think most conferences assume that speakers got it. And I actually think the opposite. I think most speakers need practice. They need feedback. They need run-throughs. So don't assume that can be masked on a Zoom.
0: I totally agree. Can I ask, what do you find about the best speakers that makes them so good? I mean, I certainly have a lot of thoughts on this given the podcast, but what do you find makes the best so good?
1: I think it's a lot of practice, to be honest. We hosted a massive Women in Enterprise Tech Summit two years ago called Navigate. And the amount of time. I saw our speakers put in to their individual presentations, I think is a direct correlation. You know, the more time you put in, the more feedback you get, the more comfortable you'll be, the more fun you'll have. And I think that really comes through and resonates with the audience.
0: Yeah, no, I'm totally with you in terms of the preparation. I guess for you as the organizer of the event, have there been any big learnings in terms of what it takes to run a really successful online event? And I guess where do you think many are maybe going wrong today as they make that transition?
1: I think even if mistakes are being made right now, they're being made in the spirit of creativity. And we're seeing yeah. so much creativity and personality in full force. I love what our company, Fire Hydrant, did. They actually created a video for a sponsored happy hour at a virtual developer conference on how to make an old-fashioned drink. It was so well done. It had a great sense of humor. And I think it just really, really resonated. And we always do it. I work bench icebreaker at our events. It's a tradition. And we had a presenter last week actually show a photo of herself via Zoom screen share of her sitting on an ostrich. You know, these are things that were hard to do in person before. So I think it's having fun and recognizing that we're all learning along with each other that is so important during this time.
0: Well, I mean, I've never quite had anyone share a photo of them on an ostrich and I've done over 3,000 interviews. So (laughs) clearly I'm I'm missing (laughs) some I do want to move into my favorite element though, Jessica, which is the quick fire round. So I say a short statement and then you hit me with your immediate thoughts in about 60 seconds or less. Are you ready to dive in? Ready to go. Okay. So the New York tech ecosystem, the pros and the cons.
1: The pros. I love our pizza, our hustle, our grit, you know, our geography, getting uptown and downtown in minutes, our diversity of industries, the number of suits and customers in New York unmatched anywhere else in the country. And we're all missing New York City so so much right now and praying for it to fight and come back during this time what's hard for New York and I think specific to enterprise is that certain enterprise roles are of course still harder to hire for and it's really just a function of not having had that long time enterprise ecosystem here so talent like enterprise marketing product managers with a lot of experience it's still quite competitive to hire them
0: can I ask with the cost inefficiency of the valley with the I think everyone would agree probably worsening living conditions in the valley are you seeing a migration of top tech talent from the Valley to New York?
1: We absolutely are. And we're seeing a lot of folks say, hey, I've always wanted to live in New York, come out. We've seen founders, serial founders, who may have started their first company out in the Bay, but have decided to start their second or third company in New York City. So we're so excited for that and we welcome them with big arms.
0: Tell me, the hardest element of your role with Workbench today?
1: (laughs) I think it's the hardest, but it's also the best, which is just constant context switching and so much learning. So constantly learning, constantly constantly have to teach myself new things, new technologies, companies, people's deals, events, content, customer insights, our own fundraising, hustling alongside our startups. And it's the best part of the job. But also by Friday, my head actually hurts from just so much stuff in it. And we always joke at Workbench that on Fridays, did that happen this week? Because whatever happened on a Monday usually feels like two weeks ago by then.
0: (laughs) I totally agree. And I think it's the most magical about founding your own firm though, that it's such a startup and I don't think people quite realize how much of an operator founder fund managers are. Absolutely. Tell me, what would you most like to change in the world of SaaS and enterprise SaaS today?
1: You know, I would say this about enterprise, which is at Workbench, honestly, we've tried to just make enterprise more fun and more accessible. It's historically been a white man's game. And I think that's why enterprise tech faces more diversity challenges than perhaps consumer tech or other verticals. But we're making inroads And that's why we do so much to grow the New York tech community. Tons of events, think a lot about how to make it welcoming and do a lot in supporting Women Enterprise across our Women at Enterprise Founders database, our workshops, our lunches, our conferences, and more.
0: Jessica, hit me. Final one. What's the most recent publicly announced investment? And why did you say yes and get so excited?
1: This is great timing because, again, our company, Catalyst, a customer success platform, just announced their $25 million Series be led by Spark Capital yesterday. And we actually met the founders back in 2016 through our New York City community when the founders were at DigitalOcean and Ed, the CEO, led customer success there. And given our community with the VP customer success dinners and meetups we hosted, we saw this tremendous demand for a truly unified customer success platform and how Ed and Kevin's hustle really stood out. And so they started Catalyst in 2017. We led their C2 back in 2018. And we've been honored to be a part of their ride in New York City ever since. And as we've talked about so much, customer success is now being moved to the center of the org. And for us to have met them as a part of our workbench community so many years ago, it just feels very, very full circle.
0: Jessica, as I said, been a huge fan of the model for a long time. I loved having Jonathan on and I've wanted to make this happen for quite a while. So thank you so much for joining me today. And it's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Eric. It's been
1: such a blast.
0: As I said at the beginning, huge, huge fan of their model and such exciting times ahead with Workbench. And if you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes, you can do so on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. I always love to see you there. But before we leave you today, Lucidchart is a visual workspace that makes it easy to see and understand how your business works. Whether you're visualizing cloud architecture, whiteboarding ideas for a breakthrough application, redesigning team structures to be more agile, or streamlining a process that will drive greater productivity, Lucidchart helps you see how to make your business better. Better, with more than 20 million people and 99 of the Fortune 500 relying on LucidChart to see more, know more, and do more, join them by trying LucidChart for free at lucidchart.com/20vc. forward slash That's lucidchart.com/20vc. forward slash And then there's a global pandemic. There's grim economic forecasts. Are you feeling the squeeze? An R&D tax credit can help you really lower your burn if you qualify, and most tech startups actually do. The IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? Cross-Border Solutions, an AI-driven R&D tax credit software, eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. And you can request a demo today by visiting xbs.ai forward slash 2. That's xbs.ai slash two zero. And there are two ways to add analytics to your application. Build them yourself with basic charts and dashboards using free charting libraries. Or use a comprehensive analytics platform from a really trusted partner. If you've tried the build route, you know free is not free. Hidden costs like time, maintenance, and technical debt can really add up. And that's why you should check out Loggy Analytics. Their developer-grade embedded analytics solutions make it easy to create branded dashboards and reports that scale within your own application. So stop wasting your dev team's time piecing analytics together and let them focus on your core application. Visit logianalytics.com forward slash Saster for a demo and see what's possible. And that's Loggy L-O-G-I. Visit them today and see what is possible. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode next week.